Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 Therefore laying aside falsehood Speak truth each one of you with his neighbor For we are members of one another For his name's sake Prescribe truth we giving you what the doctor ordered Jamal Bandy apologist the Lord's servant We undeserve it but Christ changed our mind frame In a world full of errors The only thing the doctor prescribes is truth Welcome back, everybody, to Prescribed Truth Podcast. I'm Jamal Bandy, your host, the one who seeks to distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes to the church and the world today, a part of the Christian podcast community. If you want to get in contact with me, you can do so by emailing me at prescribed.truth at gmail.com or calling me at 801-980-6333. If that's what you want to do, you want to contact me. Also, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, as well as Twitter as well, at Bandy underscore Jamal. Um, that is the Prescribed Truth um, Twitter account there. Also, if you want to support this ministry financially, you could do so for only just a dollar or more a month. You can uh, support the, the streaming of this podcast on different podcast servers and stuff like that. And for only a dollar or more a month, if you just join us, join with me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash prescribed truth. We have different reward tiers. Um, anywhere from a regular having a shout out, just, I just appreciate those who just give. I just appreciate you. So it's a one time shout out or up to getting a gift, a gift bag or, uh, I call it a care package that includes a shirt, gospel, gospel tracks and stickers and all that kind of good stuff. So, I mean, if you're interested in any of that just want, or just want to support, I greatly appreciate it. If not, as always, I appreciate your prayers. And also, I want to encourage everybody to check out the website. If you haven't visited the Prescribed Truth website, please do so www.prescribetruth.com or I guess HTTPS, whatever you want to be technical with that, but visit the website guys. Um, it's revamped. It's, it looks great. It's amazing. I'm, I'm really thankful for it. And, um, I got the, the shop on there for you want to look at, uh, look for prescribed truth merchandise. Um, you know, the shirts with the logo and, and different kind of stuff on there, hats and all that kind of good stuff. And you can have access to the podcast. Matter of fact, the podcast comes up on there first before it gets to anywhere else. Um, that and the Christian podcast community. So check out the website. Um, also you can have access to the YouTube videos and, the, um, the live, uh, it's a link to get to the live stream and everything else. So I mean, just a one stop shop on the website. So please check it out. I greatly appreciate that as well. Um, so today's show, I'm going to be dealing with uh, an article that's by, um, a man named Bishop Richard Wilk, if I pronounce his last name correctly. Um, the title is called Gay Daughter Sent Bishop Back to Scriptures. And this was sent to me from a friend of mine, uh, who suggested it as a, a topic to deal with on a podcast. And, um, given the topic that I dealt with yesterday with JD Greer and, um, and his article dealing with homosexuality, I felt like this is a good fit as well. And I wanted to deal with it. I wanted to do a response to it. I read through the transcript of this article. It's really a video that was being, that was, um, that was turned into an article. Uh, it was, it was transcripted. So I want to play the video for you guys so you can take a listen to what's being said and we're going to respond as we go through. Now, usually this kind of, uh, content I would put under video reviews and not necessarily, necessarily make it a podcast episode, but given, um, what's being said in the content, I think it also applies to what's being said concerning social justice issues. Um, this, I mean, similar argument, you know, that he makes here. And, um, I wanted to discuss that and bring that to bear to see that it's a show that those who are of the social justice persuasion, you know, I mean, you're, you're really getting to a place where you're getting to the slippery, this slippery slope. I mean, you start buying into this idea of this marginalization and all these things without true precedence. And then you have all kind of things come up like, you know, the same sex attraction and uh, those who uh, LGBTQ and all that kind of stuff. You, you just you just leave it wide open. And so I want to take the time to deal with it. All right. So I'm going to pull it up. And we're, for those of you who watch this live on YouTube, as, as I'm live on YouTube, Lord willing, every every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to pull up the video so we can watch it together. Those of you listening this on the um, audio version, you will hear the audio, of course. All right. So I don't want anybody left out. And um, I actually like this better. So therefore, I don't have to spend all this time reading. And y'all have to hear me terribly try to read through this article. You know, my reading is just subpar. <laughs> and so anyway, I didn't want to burden you with that. And so we're going to play this video. 
and we're going to respond to it. All right. So as always, feel free to leave comments. Let me know what your thoughts are concerning what you hear, uh, whether you agree or disagree, any kind of pushbacks or any of that stuff. If you think I'm being over the line or anything, please hit me up. Let's discuss it. That's what it's about. I'm um, having interactions. All right. And so, um, so without any further ado, let's, let's jump into this. Hello, I'm Bishop Richard Wilkie. Nearly 35 years ago, my wife, Julia, and I wrote the first Disciple Bible Study, an in-depth curriculum that eventually numbered four studies in all. At the time, the United Methodist Church didn't have a long-term, small group study that took you through the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Over the decades, nearly three million people around the world have taken at least one of the disciple studies. Among my greatest joys has been hearing countless stories of how a disciple has changed lives, inspired calls to the ministry, restored marriages, and healed and strengthened congregations. Well, understanding how God has used this study to bring positive change and power to our church has been both rewarding and humbling. That is why the current divide in our United Methodist Church over homosexuality breaks my heart. I've given my life to revitalizing the church and bringing people to Christ. I want to say that allowing this issue to separate us seems incomprehensible. But I suppose I can comprehend it on a certain level. You see, 30 years ago, our daughter Sarah shared with Julie and me that she was gay. She came out to us when she was 27 years old. She had entered into a committed relationship with another woman. We never imagined this was anything that would touch our family. While I had never studied in depth the passages in the Bible that seemed to concern homosexuality, I felt the Bible was clear and that as a pastor and leader in the church, I stood by what our United Methodist Book of Discipline said. Uh, I just want to stop there for a moment. Now, as he laid out, I mean, his last name is Wilkie. I pronounced his name wrong, so I apologize for that. Richard Wilkie. Um, he laid out his body of work. I mean, he's been, as what he said, he's responsible for writing literature to help bring people closer to Christ, even those who are in the church, to help them grow in Christ and, and all these things in a United Methodist Church. I never read the discipline books or the disciple books, so I don't know what they contain. So I can only take his word for that in that sense. And so, I mean, he's laid a body of work. And I think in my mind, him bringing that out is just to try to build credibility. The fact that, hey, I've done these things. Obviously, I'm for the church. Like, obviously, I'm not against the church. Look what kind of things I've done for the church. So I'm not against the church. And I think that's what he's the reason why he wants to bring all that out. Like, hey. I'm in, I'm for revitalizing the church, as he says, but then he goes on to say, I don't understand why this divide is. And he says that he hasn't studied in depth what the Bible seems to say about homosexuality. And, it, and to me, that's dishonest. Like you're a bishop, you're, you, even though you're retired, you were a bishop. And what is the qualifications of an elder? One who's able to teach. How are you able to teach? If you don't know what the scripture says concerning these subjects, homosexuality is not a new thing. It's not. It's not a new thing. And the Bible calls us to study to show ourselves approved. This is, these are, and he said that things are, it was clear of what the disciple talked about. He wants to say truly what the disciple teaches and stuff like that. But what does the Bible teach concerning these things? It's clear. It's clear. It's cut and dry. It's just as, just like I mentioned yesterday, it's just as cut and dry as talking about how we shouldn't tell lies. It's just as cut and, cut and dry as saying that an adulterer is wicked and needs to repent. It's just as cut and dry. This subject is not new. 
you know. And so I and then when he brings up his daughter in a situation, you can you can feel his heartstrings. Like I can feel him, you know. Like I've never been in a situation. I'm still young. My boys are still young. I haven't gone through anything like that. So I can get the understand like the the heartbreak of having your child come to you, especially your Christian family. You your child comes to you and expresses that, hey, I have same sex attraction. And not only do I have the attraction, I'm acting on it in a committed relationship and so on and so forth. What do you do with it as a parent? What do you do? I mean, there is an answer to that, right? I mean, there's an answer to that other than what the culture want to make it seem like Christians are saying, like, we're going to come with the blowtorch and fire everything up. Like, there is a biblical godly answer to all of that. It is, right? You know, but he he brings us up to pull at the art strings like, hey, I have a daughter with this uh, in this issue. I, I understand. And, you know, we shouldn't be divided on this. If I basically if I can love my daughter through this, we why are we divided on this and all that kind of stuff like that. This kind of what it's going to pull into. And I just want to say, man, the Bible is clear before we go any further in the video. I want to be clear. The Bible is clear concerning homosexuality. It's concerning all sin is clear. All right. If we're in sin, we need to repent. That means turn away from sin. Repentance does not mean I want to I want to say this for the podcast, for those who may listen and listen to this later. Repentance does not mean that you just ask for forgiveness. That's not repentance. All right. Repentance is a military term. It means to do an about face, to turn away from. And when you're turning away from something, you're not just turning away from something into empty space. You're supposed to be turning away from something and turning to someone. All right. I want to say that again. In repentance, you're supposed to be turning away from something and turning to someone. All right. So the something is our sin. We're to turn away from our sin, turn our backs on our sin. Whatever that sin is, you turn your back on it. So it's same sex attraction. It is sin. Turn your back on it. It's lust and perversion. Turn your back on it. It's lying and deceiving. Turn your back on it. But don't just turn your back on it. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus because it's only by his righteousness, only by his righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross that we can have everlasting life, that we can even be forgiven. It's all done in Christ. All right. So don't listen to this podcast and thinking, oh, he's trying to be hateful. No, there's a way out. There's a way out. But the thing is, our culture and the issue in the United Methodist Church, as well as other places, the culture does not like that answer. And unfortunately, for those who claim to be Christians, they feel like that answer isn't enough. That's the sad thing. That's why there's a divide, because there are those who hold to what the scripture teaches and knows that there's a way out through the gospel. And there are others who say, hey, I know that your gospel says this, but we don't we don't want to we don't want that. It got to be another way. And no, no, you know, it's, it's not. You repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own selves. Don't love your sin more than Christ. You know, and that's all of our issues. And so I'm going to continue the video. I just wanted to throw that in there. Now, this video, as you see, this video is 16 minutes long. You know, so I'm hoping to get through this video um, in the duration of this podcast. Okay, so this may be a little long one. So just bear with me. I'm not I'm going to try my best not to stop it a lot um, through here so we can get through it faster. Now, however, I was facing this matter as a parent. The night that Sarah shared her news with us, Julia and I talked, and we were immediately at peace with knowing that her homosexuality was not a result of her upbringing. We had raised her as four of our children in a loving, Christ-centered home, In one way or another, all of our children have devoted themselves to a life of faith and service in the church. Sarah heard a call to mission as a young age. Now, I want to to stop it here. Um, And by the way, uh, uh, Edwin, Proverbial Life, man, grace and peace, brother. Glad you could make it in, man. Um, Now, what he's attempting to do here is establish credibility for now his daughter. And that's the problem here. And I don't know where he stands theologically. You know, honestly, I don't know United, United Methodist Church as a whole 
Um, I, I doubt they're reformed in that sense and all that kind of stuff like that. And so here, what he's about to say is like baffling to me because he's finna try to start, he's finna try to set, uh, um, credentials, credibility for his daughter and saying, Hey, she, she knows the Lord. I mean, he's not going to say that like verbatim, but he's going to lay out the fact that she was called to the mission called by who, I mean, that's the, that's the question we have to ask called by who. And the answer we that he would say is called by God. I mean, called by God into the missions, you know, so she, Hey, went and served in missions and all these things, you know, so she's had this, she's been, she's grown up in a Christian home, you know, Christian parents who, done the best that they could in raising their children. Mind you, she was in her twenties when she came out. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't when she was living with them that she had this issue or maybe she did and didn't tell them or whatever. But either way, it was when she was in her twenties, grown and out of the house. I'm, I'm guessing that she came out and told her parents. Um, but he's going to try to establish credibility that she was indeed a Christian, that she's a Christian. She's a believer. And she's struggling with this. Now, he's going to say something that's going to make this more clear why I'm saying these things. So I'm not just accusing him of saying these things. He's going to say more that's going to make it more clear um, that this is what he's trying to imply. All right. And so uh, we're going to listen further. Over the years, she has served in roles ranging from director of an inner city community center to religious publisher. She is in church every Sunday. That young woman before us that night, Sarah, wanted to be loved and accepted, but she wasn't a troubled, tortured soul. She was happy and whole, and Julie and I believed that her sexual orientation was how God had made her. Now, that is the crux of the issue. That's the crux of the issue. Now, time and time again, I've said this on my channel before, and I'll say it again. All because people do good things while they're young. They could be in a Christian home and a Christian family and this and that and a third. And you could believe that they are Christian, but they doesn't mean that they are. A person can profess all day long that they know the Lord, but it will come out will come out if they truly do or don't and us as humans we don't know who is truly called of god honestly we don't we see fruit that's what god called us to do we know the fruit that people bear and that's all we can do but when the person shows the colors they show the true colors that hey i don't believe the gospel i don't believe the same thing you do i actually love my sin i i don't think anything's wrong with my sin there's a problem that's a problem. It doesn't matter how many times they've gone to church. It doesn't matter if they served on the usher board. It doesn't matter if they served in the choir. It doesn't matter if they preached. It doesn't matter if they pastored. It doesn't matter. What matters is what fruit that they bear and do and does it continue? Because the Bible gives us a promise that those who are in Christ will continue. And if someone does fall away, if someone does stray, if, if they're in Christ, they will return. They will come back. It won't be an excuse of that. So with that being said, Given what he's telling me here, I'm supposed to believe that she was a Christian, but straight away. But given what he's continuing to say is that she's a Christian, even with this same sex orientation, even with this unrepentance of being with this other woman and everything else. That's what he's trying to tell us, that she's still a Christian. He said that she wasn't a troubled soul. She's she's not a troubled soul. She's not in any danger of 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 judgment. She's happy and whole. And see, and that's the narrative of our culture. Your happiness. Wanting to be happy when happiness is so futile. Happiness, you can't trust it. It's subjective. It's here one minute, one minute and gone the next. But that's why we're thankful that Christ gives us joy. Gives us joy. Even when it's painful, we have joy in the Lord because of the truth. But then he says that she's whole. Whole in what standard? How? How is she whole when she's warring, warring against the, the God that created her? That's like me in, a, in an affair, in an adulterous relationship, yet I'm happy and I'm whole. I, plug that in. Plug any sin you want to in that. Hey, I enjoy bestiality. I enjoy being with animals. Hey, but I'm happy and I'm whole. It doesn't work. It sounds foolish. Even some of you may listen to me saying, Jamal, now you know you're just going a little too far there. But it's the truth. It's the logical conclusion. If you want to, if you want to make the excuse and say, well, say homosexuality is no bigger sin than anything else. Okay, well, plug anything else in that then. 
Plug pedophilia in that then. Plug it in there. Hey, it's okay to be a pedophile as long as you're happy and you're whole. You're not a tortured soul. It it doesn't line up. It doesn't line up. All right? It's, but this is the narrative of the culture. It's about being happy. It's about what makes you happy, not about the one who created you, not about pleasing God. And from a, from a bishop, one who pastored people, and he's had a conversation with his wife, and they were at peace knowing, hey, it's not our fault. We raised the best we could, you know, but, hey, she's not a tortured soul. She's happy, you know. We should be. She just wants to be loved and accepted. What do, What does the culture really mean when they say they want to be accepted? What do they say? What do they really mean? They don't mean that they, they want you to be able to get along with them and, you know, be not be kind to them. That's not what they're saying. When they say they want to be loved and accepted, their definition of love is definitely not biblical because love tells us that we don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but we rejoice with the truth. But then also is that to accept them, they're talking about accepting their sin, accepting their sin, accepting them for what they love to do, no matter how bad it goes against God. It doesn't matter. Accept them. All right. And see, and as Christians, we can accept another person because they're made in in the Imago Day. Hey, I can be kind to you. I can treat you with dignity and respect because you're made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean I have to condone, agree with, or sit and be okay with your sin. That night we learned something new about our daughter. But we loved and cherished her just the same, if not more. Still, I knew I had some work to do. Now, this is good. I'm, I'm actually okay with encouraged the fact that he said, hey, we loved her the same. Like, nothing changed as far as us loving our daughter. And matter of fact, we loved her more. Praise God. That's cool. Like, that's good. Like, we should, like, that's what you should do. You should love her. She's your daughter, right? Nobody would say you should hate her. Right. But this is what our, but this is what the culture's narrative is, that hatred is you saying anything against what they do. That's the that's the culture's narrative. All right. You love me in the, in the way you show me that you love me is that you don't say anything bad about what I find pleasure in. That's the culture. I needed to reconcile my commitment to scriptural authority with loving and accepting my daughter. Frankly, I was amazed at my lifelong ignorance about homosexuality. I'd spent my ministry dealing mostly with the uses, misuses, and abuses of sex among heterosexuals. But I did not understand or worry about my energetic, popular youth fellowship leaders who never went out on dates. I was grateful for the Wesleyan Service Guild women, some of whom lived together and cared for each other for 50 or 60 years. I had a couple male friends who were bachelors. I didn't give any thought to the private lives they must have had or even the pain that their secrets must have inflicted. So I began my own journey. I reached out to other families with homosexual members, and I listened to their stories of struggle in the church. And I began a more in-depth examination of the scriptures that address the issue of homosexuality. You may be surprised to know I hadn't fully done my homework, but the truth is, If you have a big picture grasp of the Bible, as I do, then you will understand just how insignificant these few passages are. How can I say anything in the Bible is insignificant? I'm worried. I'm wondering that. How how can you say anything in the Bible is, is insignificant? Even the scripture that talks about the one who does could admit homosexuality along with the one who's a drunkard and everything else will not inherit the kingdom of God. How is that insignificant? What about the scripture that talks about the works of the flesh in Galatians five talks about the works of the flesh and he lists them out. And yet then says which sexual immorality is part of that. And then it says that those who practice such things, 
practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How how do you even fix your mouth to say they're insignificant as one who says that you are concerned and care about the church of Christ? Even love God even. Let's 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 let him say what he has to say. Because not all passages in the Bible were created equal. The books of the minor prophets, such as Malachi and Obadiah, can't be compared to the power and significance of Genesis and Exodus. There's a and see, I think when people say stuff like that, it's like they're trying to get you to now have less credibility in the scriptures. Like, hey, you know, not all of this. I mean, it is, it's God's word, but, you know, it's, some of it's more of God's word than others. Like Obadiah and the rest of these, I mean, then they're, they're not as good as, like, as credible or, you know, or should be taken as seriously as Isaiah, you know. But no, all of God's word is taken seriously. There's a reason that Obadiah is in there. There's a reason that Micah is in there. It's a reason. Now, you may not remember them on top of your head all the time. You may have to remind yourself that they're there sometimes, but that's on you if you don't read the scriptures. But they're there, and they're there for a reason. They're there for a reason. God put them there for a reason. So the same reason why he put the gospels in there and the letters to the churches and Revelation as a reason for it. So to say any of it's significant because the the quote the quote unquote not all scripture is created equally. What? What does that even mean? And this is and what gets me is like this is an older man. He's retired, a retired bishop, and you t- you tell us when you're retired that hey, I really don't know what the Bible says about anything. I mean, matter of fact, I'm gonna tell you what I really think about the Bible. That hey, I mean, you you could just take it as face value. I mean, you know, it may not all be inspired. Honestly, we may not even know. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what that kind of leads to. I mean, they're not all created equal. What do you mean? What, so is some of it God's word and some of it isn't? You know, like, and the fact that United Methodist Church puts this on their sites and everything else is just, and it, you know, anyway, but nobody should be surprised with what goes with United Methodist Church anyway. But this, I mean, it's still, it's, it's, it's crazy. And the reason why this is, is interesting, too, because this is kind of stuff that's creeping into SBC. And that's why I want to bring this up. This, this kind of stuff that's creeping into the SBC as well. You know, that's why I dealt with, with J.D. Greer and stuff like that as far as his article. Like, they're saying the same thing. Now it's like they're throwing the Bible under the bus or something. You know, like the Bible never said anything clear about these issues. Many Bibles use red letters to set Jesus' words apart. The color highlights in their importance relative to the surrounding text. Now, that's, when he brought that up, I was I almost struggled a little bit because when I listened to that the first time and it's like, really, red letter Bible, you're really going to say because the, the red letters, that's supposed to mean that, hey, this is this is like better than the rest of the text or, you know, we know why that's there. But all of it's God's word, all of it's theonostas. We just have quotes of Jesus when he was here. But that doesn't mean that the Paul's letters are less significant. They're all significant equally. It's God's word. I also know very well about the danger of plucking a particular Bible passage out of context and using it to prove something. No doubt some scriptures ring with such timeless clarity that we don't need to know their particular place in the Bible. Passages such as, you shall have no other gods before me and Love your neighbor as yourself. But generally, Scripture shouldn't have to hide from its context. In fact, context often heightens or diminishes a passage meaning and significance. Remember, remember too that Jesus is Lord, even of the Bible. So, keeping this understanding in mind, I took each passage that addresses homosexuality and examined its context. I looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which has been used over the centuries to claim that homosexuality is a sin, the so-called sin of Sodom. The angry townspeople were eager to rape, violate, maim, kill, 
the strangers who were visiting Lot. But I think it is fairly easy to see that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality, but rather the townspeople's violent inhospitality to strangers. I say easy because you don't have to look beyond the Bible to understand this. So, <laughs> so God, so God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah because they didn't know how to treat people when they came to their town. Is that really what we're going to go? Is that really the argument it's going to make here? Really? Really? No. See, it wasn't just when the those angels, those two men that was coming for Lot came through and they had the issue. This is something that was already going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Prior to that, God was already planning on destroying Sodom and Gomorrah anyway. All right. Abraham was pleading with God so to spare a lot, spare the city because a lot was there. And so the thing is, like, it, yeah, of course, we, it would be a lie to say this was the only sin that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah committed, right? I mean, just like saying a, a homosexual, that's a, like that's the only sin that they're guilty of. Like, no, if you're a homosexual, you're guilty of plenty of other sins. I'm not. I'm a heterosexual, and I'm guilty of plenty of other sins. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, no, nobody makes that case. But it, it's the Bible's clear of the seriousness behind homosexuality and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's clear in that. The prophet Ezekiel identified it when he wrote, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus also implies that Sodom was guilty of ugly inhospitality. Well, we know, of course, that... Now, I want to pull this up. Now, given the, the when he quoted from Ezekiel there, once again, we put him out that that wasn't the only sin that Solomon was guilty of. And you say that, that led to the destruction. Well, pride is the root of all of our sin. You can say that, right? But once again, we the fall of Solomon Gomorrah is what they did. It's, it's, it's a combination of all of that. Disregard for God in taking upon themselves inhumane practices. It wasn't just because it was inhospitable. I mean, that wasn't the reason why they were being overthrown. I mean, if God, if that was the issue, that I think honestly, if we look at the whole of Scripture, how God dealt with nations who basically disobeyed Him and who um, worshipped idols and all that kind of stuff like that, what He did, He allowed other nations to come in and take them over, enslave them, even you know, kill a bunch of them, but to rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. All right, there's a reason why we call when it comes to homosexual sex acts, sodomy. There's a reason why, why that's called that. Um, let's, real quick. He, now he brought up Luke. And I wanted to pull this up. All right, Luke. So let's start let's, um, at Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Let's start there and read the verse 12. All right, so I'm just going to read this through. Now, he's saying that it's because of hospitality. They didn't treat these strangers well. And, and this is an example of what... Um, you know, of an example of why uh, they were destroyed, an example of their being um, inhospitable, so on and so forth. And so it says, and he said to them, being Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bags, no knapsacks, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, uh, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable 
on the day on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right. So the issue here is not that people are being uh, mistreating strangers. All right. The issue here is that these disciples are going out as Jesus is giving his warning. Hey, he's, these people are going out proclaiming good news, talking about this coming Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. They're coming with a message and those people don't want to hear. And that's what Jesus is saying. If the, if the town, if they receive you, eat and drink what's set before you, reside, find a home to reside in, so on and so forth and stay. Don't go from house to house. But if that town does not receive you, then nevertheless, you let them know the kingdom of God has come near. So the, the whole issue is bringing to them the message of repentance. And so them rejecting God, rejecting the command to repent and turn from their sin. That's the issue. And he says it'd be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. That's the context. It, it has nothing to do with them being ugly towards strangers. That's the context. And so when he says, hey, I've, I've taken deep study and looking at the context of these things. And, and I'm saying, hey, it, the issue with Sodom is really that they, they were just mean to strangers. Like, no, no, no. And Luke is not a good example to bring that out. That the holiness code in Leviticus and Deuteronomy forbids homosexual acts between men. But we forget the context. The code was designed for the specific purpose of setting the Jews apart from the Canaanites. So the reason why God forbid a man to be with another man is because pagans were doing that. Huh. It had to do with a moral obligation. I mean, so think about this. So we should be okay. We should be okay for men to sleep with uh, another woman outside of their marriage because, hey, I mean, that's part of the holiness code. And guess what? Guess what? I mean, that was only done to set Israel apart from the Canaanites. You have to put, I mean, you have to plug these things in and you can't escape that. You have the ceremonial laws, you have the uh, the civil laws and all those things that set them apart from the other nations and how they worshiped and how they did things concerning God and stuff like that. I mean, you had all that in there, right? But when it came to the moral code, as far as what is immoral before God, right? Because sexual immorality, we keep saying in the script, seeing in the scripture, sexual immorality. That would include homosexuality. That would include bestiality. That would include um, fornication, out, which outside of marriage, right? And that would include adultery. That would, that would include all of that. And you're telling me that now all, all, hey, all, you know, all gloves are off now. We, you do your thing. You know what I'm saying? You want to go be with a horse? Go be with a horse. I mean, because that was just to make you different from the Canaanites. No, man, those are excuses. Like these are excuses to hold on to a narrative that bears no weight. And man, honestly, man, people like him, and this, I, I'm saying this with conviction and compassion. I don't say this. I'm not saying this like I'm like I, like I know it all, like I got it all together. What I'm saying is this kind of stuff like this is what Jesus talks about when people put stumbling blocks before people. All right. And people like that should have a millstone hang around, hung around their neck for twisting God's word in that way. Causing people to feel like it's okay to sin. That's what you're doing. That's what that's what Mr. Wilkie here is doing. He's making people feel comfortable in sinning, laying laying a stumbling block before them. The very law in which God gave to Moses that lets us know that these things are evil. He's saying, "Hey, well, they're just to set you apart." No, Israel was set apart because they were God called them to do. What was good, even though the world was doing wickedness and they were already doing that. Remember the flood? The world was already in sin. It was already in sin, doing egregious things. And the reason why God called upon Noah is because he found favor on him. It wasn't because Noah was so perfect, because God found favor on Noah. And he came to be blameless in his generation. But it was because of God's spirit. It's because of God. This you know this is man this is it's hard to hear this it's it's baffling to me you know but I know people would take this and eat it up it's like oh see see Leviticus that ain't that ain't that ain't really for now that's just back then because we just want to be set apart but no then what do you do with the New Testament scriptures what do you do with First Corinthians what do you do with Galatians what do you do with Timothy what do you do with any of it 
not intended as a universal morality. It was particular to the Hebrews and to the time. And if it was only if it wasn't if it wasn't a universal set for morality, then why does Paul mention how the law was even written on the hearts of the Gentiles? Because they didn't have the law of Moses yet. It's still a law upon their hearts. Why would Paul say such a thing? Him being a Jew. Why would he say such a thing if it wasn't a universal code? We're all made in, in an image of God. We all know right from wrong inherently. The problem is because of our sinful nature, we love the bad. We love our evil ways. That's our issue. And that's why we need our hearts changed. And that's why with something like this, it's like, man, I can't say he's Christian. I can't say he's Christian and saying stuff like this. And if and this is what he's doing to peddle with his daughter, I can't say she's a Christian either. Like that's what if that's what she's believing and following behind. I can't say that with with a surety. I can't. Like this is evil. It reflected one side of the constant tension in Judaism, as well as in all religions, between exclusion and inclusion. Neither Jews nor Christians obey the holiness code today. Christians eat shrimp because Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. We do not. And what do you think? So what do you think what comes out of the mouth of a person who says, hey, I, I know what God says concerning these things, but I actually enjoy it. It's what's coming out of the mouth and it still defiles them. And the thing is with the shrimp, the argument with the shrimp is, man, it's so tired, man. And it's been refuted time and time again. Once again, you have the moral law. you got the civil law. you got the ceremonial law. All these have their place. When Jesus came, he done away with the ceremonial law. He's done away with the dietary laws. All those things are done away with because all of those things were simply to set Israel apart. But the moral law. Man, you had other nations being penalized because of the moral law. God told Israel, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But what was the sin of, 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 of Babylon and the sin of, of the Persians and so on and so forth, the Canaanites and all of them? They had idols. They worshiped idols. They sacrificed their daughters to the idols. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to Molech. Why would God pu punish them? I mean, they're separate from Israel, right? I mean, that's what it all was. No, they're they, they not bound by the same moral law as Israel are. No, because it's not universal. It's just for Israel. Israel, you don't sacrifice to Molech. But if they sacrifice to Molech, then it's okay. What's the sin of the Egyptians? That, and their idolatry, not just the fact they didn't let Israel go. No, they, they were condemned because of their sin of idolatry as well. That's why their, their nation is not standing today. You know, it's like... We're all bound. We're all bound by that moral law, moral law, but we're not all bound by the dietary and ceremonial laws and civil laws. And I mean, civil laws, as in when somebody commits a sin of adultery, no one's sitting there stoning them in the courts. And that's just a reality. Excuse me. Stone those who commit adultery because Jesus said, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. But that didn't make her sin of committing adultery good. That is, that didn't mean that she wasn't bound to go. Cause what did Jesus tell that woman? And, and you can argue, you may argue with textual criticism as far as whether or not that's in the early text or not. But in that particular, in that passage of scripture, what did Jesus tell the woman afterwards where your accusers are? I don't condemn you either, but go. And he told her, don't sin no more. Don't sin no more. Why would Jesus tell her don't sin no more if she's not bound by the moral law? Why would Jesus tell anyone that he came across that was in sin not to sin anymore? Nor would anyone today justify killing children who talk back to their parents. All right, so Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. 
So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. That's the, that's the scripture. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. That's it. But that text is not talking about a child. <laughs> if you read that text, if you, if, if you take that was a child, then you mean that that child could be, a, that was a drunkard. That child was a drunkard and was, had, a, you know, able, old enough to have a business and everything else, have their own life. No, it, just like I'm a grown man. I'm a grown man. And if, but my mother's still my mother. And I'm always going to be her child. Always going to be her child. But I'm grown. And I'm accountable for my sin. You know, I am. And I'm accountable to the law. And so in the, in that sense, that, that child, as he's, he's bringing up, and the, and the scripture doesn't say necessarily a child, like a, like a, like a small child. You know, it's talking about a son. You know, it's, it's talking about a son. All right. So it could be somebody who's older. That's misleading. That's misleading to bring that out. You know, that's, that's just not doing justice towards the text at all. Not at all. Apostle Paul does graphically list sins where women have sex with women and men with men. But again, context is everything. Paul was familiar with only two kinds of homosexual activity. When wealthy Greeks would buy young boys as slaves and sexually exploit them, and when part of the Greek-Roman world would go to male and female prostitute priests as a form of fertility or mystery cult worship. Neither but but is Paul see once again those are cop outs and excuses because in the in First Corinthians if in First Corinthians six is Paul addressing hey these leaders who do these things or these people, these priests who are prostitutes and stuff like that or you know A B and C no. He's saying plainly Plainly, those who do these things, the, the homosexual, the effeminate, the, the adulterer, the drunkard, you know, the liar, and all these things, they would not inherit the kingdom of God. He's very clear with that. And then he says, such were, such were some of you. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, such were some of you, but you have been saved. Now, I'm paraphrasing. But he tells them, but you have been saved. You have been washed. You have been cleaned. Why would Paul say any of that if he's just talking about when it comes to homosexuality is just these two types of issues or these situations? And but then again, if I was to give Mr. Wilkie that argument, then why would it still matter? Because what sin is they commuting? I mean, committing. I mean, if they if these priests have sex with prostitutes, I mean, that's part of moral code as well. Right. Taught it's taught about fornication, and all those things. So what will be the issue there if we're not bound by it? And if these these leaders were having sex with these young boys, then. Why would that matter either? Why would it even matter? Why would Paul even address that? Because, hey, no one's bound by the moral code. But see, we both know that's not true. We all know that's not true. And these are attempts to find, try their best to find loopholes out of obeying the scriptures. And that's all it is. All it is. And it does not work. And I promise you, it won't stand on judgment. It won't stand on judgment, y'all. So don't listen. To, I hope you don't listen to this podcast like I'm just trying to harp on just homosexuals and stuff like that. Hey, anyone who's living a life of sin, unrepentant sin, we all got to stand before God. And you can make all the excuses you want to here on this earth. And people may hear you. People may listen to you and don't think anything otherwise. But when you stand before God on judgment, how will that help you? How will an argument like that help you? It won't. It won't. Ancient practices, of course, has any resemblance to the loving, faithful relationship that I witness in my family and among our family friends. So when he says loving, faithful, he's not talking about between a son and a daughter and so on and so forth. He's talking about between a woman who loves another woman in that in that way and and other families who have that same issue. Is it truly loving? Let's think about this for a moment. What does, well, how does the Bible define love? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It, it's, it's not set on its own way, right? You know, and so therefore, uh, is it really loving what they have? Is it truly faithful? Faithful at what cost? I mean, we can give it that they're probably faithful to each other, but faithful at what cost? Faithful at what cost? Faithful at, at being unfaithful to God. 
So you have your good life now. Enjoy your love life as you can have it now. But to risk an eternity in hell for what? For flesh, for flesh. And so it's like, is it, it's not really loving. It's actually hateful. It's hateful. And families who have that situation and they're, they're going on in their families and are sheltering them away from the truth, like, like this guy is saying and, and making it seem like it's okay. That's hateful. That's, that's hateful. Like you hate your, you hate your love, your loved ones. If you do this, if you say this kind of, if you make this kind of arguments, that's hate. You know, it's like, it's, it's not love. It's not love. And, and couples who have their relationship, that's not true love. It's not. You got some affection. You got some lust. But it's not love. Not truly. Fixating on those words also misses the larger point that Paul was simply trying to list every sin he could think of. He wanted to show that All of us have fallen short, that we are all sinners in need of the atoning grace of God. As I reflect on the list of sins, I know that not a day goes by, but I'm in need of grace. But Jesus and his ministry concern me most. Jesus is Lord. Jesus deliberately focused on the marginalized. Time and again, he healed the crippled, the demon-possessed, and the sick in the synagogue, although religious leaders scolded him that the labor and healing violated the Sabbath. Now, you hear that? Now, that's why I want to say this this has ties to the social justice issue. You hear that language? Jesus, you know, he, he constantly, he was there for the marginalized. Huh. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who are the marginalized? Who are truly being marginalized here? And in the social justice side, it's the blacks and so on and so forth. We're being marginalized. Well, who's to stop the homosexuals saying, hey, I'm marginalized too. And this is why we can push for same-sex marriage and all that stuff like that. Because, hey, we're a marginalized people. You know, we're oppressed. We're an oppressed people. You know, and so this is why this social justice stuff is like a, a slippery slope. And it's laid into a cliff, if not already falling over. You know, but this is the kind of language he uses here. It's the same exact language that's used by those who advocate for social justice. You know, once again, we're all for justice, right? We're all, just like we're all for people being treated equally and fairly, but people twist that and you have arguments like this gentleman is making here for homosexuality, right? Cause they're marginalized, right? They're marginalized. But you know, look what Jesus did. Like he, he healed the sick and he healed the demon possessed and all those things. But, but, but check this out though. Being sick isn't a sin. Being sick isn't a sin. Being poor isn't a sin. Now, your laziness that cause you to be poor may be just a sin, but that's, if that's the case. I mean, but being poor in and of itself isn't a sin. Being sick isn't a sin. And you're demon-possessed because, hey, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're plagued by a demon. But guess what? You're still a sinner. And Jesus would have told the sinner who was demon-possessed to repent, would have told the sick, and once they've been healed, to still repent because everybody has sins they need to be repented of, right? And so it's like... What are you getting at here? You can't equate the two because Jesus not one time went to someone who's in sin and said, hey, you're OK. I'm, I'm going to die for that in a few in about but give me about a few days. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die for that. You're, you're good. You know, continue on what you're doing. The woman called the woman at the well. <laughs> he didn't sit there and say, you know what? You had a bunch of husbands. But guess what? You know what? Go ahead and keep having some more. I'm going to die on the cross eventually. Once you go tell people who I am and that I told you all about yourself, I'm, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to shed my blood. And guess what? You're okay to keep doing what you're doing. Just keep, just keep, keep at it. You're all right. You know, no, no, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say those things. He told people to repent, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. All right. So it ain't like Jesus just went around. Matter of fact, I, I on my podcast, uh, not, I didn't say I call it a podcast, but on the, um, subscriber hangout, I, I, I talked, no, matter of fact, it wasn't even on that. It was a bonus episode. It was a, it was a bonus podcast episode I, I made available to my patrons. I talked about the boldness of Jesus, how he dealt with the Pharisees and the lawyers dealing with their sin, 
you know, and they're you know, and basically calling them out, you know, like, man, it was, it was great. So Jesus wasn't just sitting back and just, Hey, I, I love you. No matter what A, B, and C. No, he's calling people to repent. And so I don't want to keep beating a dead horse. Let me call, we only got a few more minutes left on this. A desperate woman bleeding for years, an outcast touched the hem of Jesus' cloak and was healed. Our Lord forgave the prostitute who wept at his feet. He cured a Roman soldier's servant, though the Jews despised the oppressed Roman occupation. They despised the oppressed Roman occupation because they dealt unjustly. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 making stretches here. I mean, he's like literally just doing stretches, you know. And um, if you don't know the scripture, you're quick to fall into it. You will fall for this because you if you don't know the word for yourself, you're going to fall for this. That's why it's important that we know the scriptures, that we read the scriptures, we understand the scriptures because of stuff like this. Because of stuff like this, the woman who had the issue of blood, like she wasn't in sin. She was sick and she came to Jesus for her healing. All right. This had nothing to do with her being in sin and, and she was marginalized because of her sin. You know, like we have to be clear with these things, guys. Samaritans were even more detested than the Romans. Yet Jesus upended all convention when he cast a good Samaritan as the hero of his parable. So I guess the homosexuals should be the hero of our parables. That's what you're trying to make this argument to be. But see, the thing is, Jesus was giving the story about this good Samaritan because of also that stigma, the fact that they were treated bad and they were looked at as being detestable and all those things. But yeah, he was trying to prove a point. But yet, once again, it's not a sin for a Samaritan to be a Samaritan. They can't help that they're half-breeds. That's just the way they are. But it's not a sin. Not a sin. Notice how that parable didn't say an adulterer came walking down, you know, was beaten and everything else. And or somebody was beaten and everything else. And then an adulterer came and he was the hero of the story. Or a deceiver came and was the hero of the story. Or even a homosexual came and was the hero of the story. Let's just put it out there. Like, that wasn't, the, that wasn't what Jesus was trying to portray here. That wasn't what he was trying to put out there. He was he was trying to teach a lesson dealing with who's my neighbor. The man a man asked who was a Jew, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave 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 a situation, a scenario, if you will, and got the the Samaritan who is the most detestable to show that hey, he did the right thing. He all these Jews passed by, these other people passed by, they had no compassion. They wasn't a neighbor to the one who was beaten, but the Samaritan was. You cannot. You cannot compare those two issues. Can't, man. It's just dishonest to do so. The hatred and condemnation of others all seems to be the very opposite to both the action and the teachings of Jesus. He laid the groundwork for the church to accept Gentiles when he said, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. Over and over. And see, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but see, that was always the plan. Gentiles wasn't plan B. Like if you if you know the Bible, Gentiles were always in the plan. When Jesus, when when God made the promise to Abraham and said, "Through you, all nations will be blessed," that included Gentiles, not just the nation of Israel. That was one nation, the nation of Israel. But He said, "Through you, all nations will be blessed." And so, for me, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to know the Lord. Not every single person, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to know the Lord. So that was always in a plan for Gentiles to be included in, grafted in, if you will. That was always the case. It wasn't plan B. Over, Jesus placed kindness and acceptance over custom and social norms. Love one another, he commanded, as I have loved you. He also emphasized hospitality. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Once again, those words are sins. I'm just going to keep saying them. Beat the dead horse. Those weren't sins. Not, it's not sin that you were lame. It wasn't a sin because you're crippled. It wasn't a sin because of this and that third. You know, so he delay all these. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just beating a dead horse. Let me just continue. Let's finish this. 
Christ followers, how can we reject the LGBT community in the light of Jesus' ministry? Because it's sin. And once again, let's be clear what we mean by rejecting. We're not, we're not talking about rejecting them as a fact they're not, they're subhuman or they're not human or they're not people and all that kind of stuff like that. But yes, their sin is rejected. Their sin is rejected. They're, they're, uh, they're not wanting to follow the Lord. Their hatred of God's law and all those things is rejected, rejected. And we, that's not going to change if you love the Lord, if you do. You know, that's not going to change. But you could love them, and in loving them, you will be telling the truth to them. You won't lie to them. You won't. And I just feel bad for those who are LGBTQ and who may know people like Mr. Wilkie here who just gloss over their sin as if it's no big deal. And, hey, the Bible really doesn't speak on that. I mean, you know, it's it's conjecture, you know. Like, I, I feel bad for them, man. I, I really do. Because they're being led astray. They've been led into lies, into falsehoods. They're not being, they're not being shared the truth, the prescribed truth. Then they're, they're not they're given a whole bunch of error. And that's unfortunate. And yet make no mistake. I'm not condoning sin. As I've said, I've spent a lot of my ministry doing pastoral counseling, dealing with people with various sexual issues. I believe sex like fire can do a lot of harm and a lot of good. See what I'm saying? Like, okay, so you're not condoning sin, but what? But what? You're not condoning sin, but hey, sex like fire can, you know, do a lot of harm, but do a lot of good. Yeah, we know, we know what sex is for. God created sex. We know sex can be good, right? Like, really? Really? But like, but there's a difference between being sexually moral it's actually immoral. And it does more than just cause a little harm. And it does more than that. I mean, I, I would think an eternity in hell is a lot worse or a lot more significant than thinking, hey, it's just a burn. It's just a burn. You know, I mean, because your body could be burned from fire, but your soul still be intact. But your sin, your sin costs your soul. And like I said yesterday in the article, just like... um waiting to marriage to have sex and all that kind of stuff like that. That's not going to send you to heaven. You know, it's not going to, that's not going to give you a, a ticket to heaven, but guarantee you this, that our sin does cost us an eternity in hell. Guarantee you that our sin separates us from God. And it's because of that. The reason why our not sinning doesn't get us into heaven because we can never repay that debt. None of us can be perfect. God demands perfection. We're not perfect. And that's why we must trust in Christ and his righteousness. All right, so there's the reason. There are many sexual sins that are foreign to faith, among them prostitution, pedophilia, rape, promiscuity, and exploitation. But I also believe from my own knowledge and personal experience that Christ Jesus can capture the heart of anyone gay or straight, and lead them into faithful, stable, and loving relationships. What do you mean? Because I believe, I believe God can capture the hearts of anyone too, as well as the gay and the lesbian and so on and so forth, just as well as the adulterer, the liar, and so on and so forth. Yes, he can. And it, but it will lead them into faithful relationships to God. Faithful, faithful relationship to God. Right. And that would entail them turning away from their sin, because if God captures your heart, he's he's turning away from your sin. You're not going to love your sin and then love God. Like like God says, you can't love God and mammon. You can't serve two. You're going to either serve one and hate the other. You can't do you can't have it both ways. So when he says stuff like this, it sounds all good. It sounds nice and sweet, but it's not. It's evil. and It's wicked. I am proud to be among the many parents filled with the love of Jesus who are putting their arms around their gay sons and lesbian daughters. I'm grateful that my daughter has experienced the joy of a 30-year marriage. Our family has been blessed by their relationship. Nothing in my seven... 
see that. Now, I haven't, um, I, I'll be fair with you guys. I, I did my first time listening to the rest of this. I had stopped sooner than this. And so to hear that, it's like, so this is a long time ago. So 30 years. So 30 years. So no, man, like I said earlier, that I, I, I wasn't sure if his daughter maybe saved or like a cell like that because I didn't know much. But after hearing all this, it's like, no, man, I definitely know that. It's, no, she's not saved and he isn't either. Like 30 years and you feel like her relationship with her quote unquote partner or spouse is, is, is good in your eyes and you have, and you have the love of Jesus. And those are grave contradictions. Grave contradictions. 70 years of ministry would lead me to believe that our United Methodist Church would or should divide over these few misunderstood passages of Scripture. All right, I'm going to stop there because he basically is making a plea to the United Methodist Church to get rid of that divide. But just because they're misunderstood to you doesn't mean they're misunderstood. The scriptures are clear as far as what they say and what they teach, what it condemns and what it condones. And, sir, no, doesn't condone any of that. And, um, man, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, like I said, I feel bad for those who are in LGBTQ, um, situations where they have people like Mr. Wilkie who, who refuse to be honest with them, tell them the truth that their soul may be saved. You know, cause it, it, all of us gonna have to die one day. We're all going to stand before God when they give an account for our lives. And just like God won't let us pass because of our adultery and our lying and our stealing and all that stuff like that, apart from Christ, they're going to be free of their sexual sin because of, apart from Christ. But coming into Christ would not give you a license to continue in your sin. That's what Paul says. Like, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So because of the grace of God, I can't continue on doing, I can't continue lying. I can't continue stealing and being a thief and everything else. But it's, it's, it's amazing to me, man. Like these people got to stand before God one day and give an account for these things. So my heart, my heart hurts for him, man. It really does. And so, um, I'm praying for Mr. Wilkie. I'm saying this alive. I'm saying this on the air. I'm praying for Mr. Wilkie. I'm praying for his family. Like it's, that's sad, you know? And I pray that those who are divided in the United Methodist Church on this issue continue to stay divided. You know, but that they embrace the gospel as the reason. And I hope it's not because some kind of charter, whatever the case may be, but the truth of the gospel, the truth of what the Bible clearly teaches. And so with that being said, I went over my time. Um, so I'm not going to prolong this any further. Thank you so much for those who joined in on the um, podcast to chop it up with me and everything else who listened in on this and who may listen on the replay. I greatly appreciate you. Remember, if you want to contact me once again, you can do so by emailing me prescribed.truth at gmail.com or calling me at 801-980-6333. And once again, if you want to support the show financially, you can do so by joining with me on Patreon. And I greatly appreciate it. And if not, as always, I appreciate your prayers. And so remember, in a world full of errors, the only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth. Blessings.